Welcome to season two of Overcoming Working Mum Burnout. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Kerr, mum, burnout survivor, and behavior change scientist. I interview international burnout experts, HR and DEI leaders, and lifestyle coaches to find out how we can create individual, organizational, and cultural change to prevent burnout. When mums thrive, the world benefits. This week, I'm learning about communicating through proactive and positive parenting with licensed marriage and family therapist, Jennifer Kubler. I wanted to speak with Jennifer because she has so much experience working with families, both kids and parents. She has so many helpful practices and tools that make co-regulation easier, i.e. when both parent and child are able to remain calm. I learned so much from the Positive Discipline book and Jennifer's curriculum that I wanted to share it with other mums. When I was most overwhelmed, I wish I had known how to stay calm and share the load. This week's Behaviour Change Guide focuses on counting to 10 when you're triggered. You can find the guide and Jennifer's key takeaways on the episode website www.drjacquelinecurr.com slash podcast. And next week, I'll be doing a mini episode on how to set up a plan for adopting this new helpful habit. Counting to 10 when you're triggered, as recommended by Jennifer. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Hi, my name is Jennifer Keebler. I am a mother of one child who actually just graduated from college and just got his first grown-up job yesterday, so I'm pretty excited about that, and I am a licensed marriage and family therapist. Thanks, and congratulations to your son there. I know as a parent, that's (laughs) well done to you too. Could you describe briefly your journey to where you are now in your career? Sure. I have had somewhat of an eclectic and circuitous journey, but each part of my journey has led me to being a licensed marriage and family therapist. So back in college, I majored in criminal justice and communication. I actually wanted to go into the legal field. I've always just really liked communication and studying kind of the human condition. And so my earliest career incarnation was in the legal field, starting in criminal law and then morphing into real estate and land use, which gave me a view into navigating the business environment and learning the art of negotiation, conflict resolution. I was also witness to very many unhappy, overworked young people who were having issues incorporating balance into their lives. And so I was inspired at the time to quit my job. And I briefly actually started a matchmaking business because I was in a very male dominated environment and they were seeking to form connections with people. Interestingly, it was actually uh, pretty quickly financially successful, but I noticed during that work that young people were creating patterns in their relationships that they were repeating over and over in those relationships. And so I felt really inspired to want to help them to reflect back those patterns and help them to be able to learn personal growth skills and support them with what their desires were. So that led me to becoming a certified personal life coach, which I did for 10 years, which is a little like practicing therapy without a license. (laughs) 
But then I became a parent and I realized just what an important role that was and what an impact we have on both our children and in the world and that role and how much support we need, which I didn't have at the time. So part of what I do in my daily life now is what I wish I had when I was a young parent. So with that passion as a parent, I wanted to create an experience for my child that educated the whole child. So I actually collaborated to start a school that educated the whole child um, and endeavored to build intrinsic motivation in children. And so I did that for a while and because I wanted to be able to work in education and work with children, but you need credibility. People are very protective about who works with their children. So I then went back and got my master's in marriage and family therapy. So I would have the credibility with those LMFT letters behind my name after my private school was not ultimately successful, basically because it was expensive to educate children. I actually was grateful to find a school, a public school with a very similar philosophy, including an extremely high commitment to a social emotional education. And I became the counselor and mental health provider there from 2012 to 2021. So I was really lucky to work there and get exposed to hundreds of families and work with both students and parents. And I just recently left that position to start my own practice, although I still supervise the associate MFT, who's the current counselor at the school. That is a fascinating story, Jennifer. And I feel like I just uncovered a treasure that you were previously a matchmaker. I think that would have been such a great Kahoot quiz for the kids at school. (laughs) Oh, they know. They've interviewed me about it. I've been in the newsletter about it. They think it's fascinating. I was actually an investigator briefly, too. I forgot to mention that. So that fascinated them. (laughs) All those things helped bring a lot of understanding of the human condition of people today. So. Right. I can see that. And I could see how all those roles that you've played influenced um, you to the point where you were just uh, such an amazing um, support for my family and so many families at the school. You really had that experience of building a school yourself as well. So you understood that back end part of it, all the administrative struggles that are there as well. You really always seem to me so rounded. So that explains it now. <laughs> Tell me a little more about the philosophy of the charter school you worked for and why its approach can be so helpful for families. Yeah, so the school highly values social emotional learning and specifically supporting building intrinsic motivation in students. Can you explain what intrinsic motivation is? Because you've said it a couple of times, but maybe not everyone uh, understands that term. Yeah, basically helping children to be motivated internally based on their own values as opposed to externally, as opposed to seeking approval from outside or being motivated by being worried about getting in trouble or even wanting a reward or something. So truly an internal motivation for them. It's a pretty unique strategy for a school to take on and it does take a lot of effort. They really understood that an anxious, depressed or unfocused child is gonna have a lot more difficulty accessing academics. So they really put a huge value and not only responding to children's social emotional struggles, but proactively establishing, like we built a whole system of social emotional building blocks that were incorporated into the curriculum at the beginning of the year that helps students to learn about brain science, ways to cope, mindfulness, problem solving, conflict resolution, and all those skills that are going to go on to really support them as they develop in their life. And then positive discipline is the core of the school's philosophy, which I can tell you a little bit about if you want. 
Yeah, please do. Let's um, hear about what positive discipline is and the key elements. What I got out of positive discipline was that it definitely helped reduce the parenting stress and empowered the kids. So yeah, tell us more about that. Yeah, so it's great to hear that helped you and your family. I definitely think that when people first learn about it, it can be a little daunting um, because it is hard work. And one of the things I used to tell our families is that I really honored our teachers because many of them were young and didn't have children. And when you have a child, you can really begin to understand how beneficial it might be. But if you don't have children, it would be a lot easier to motivate a child by saying, we're going to have a pizza party today if we behave, or if you don't behave, you're not going to go out to recess. So positive discipline excuse any kind of punishment or rewards. And it's based on a sense of connection, longing, significance, mutual respect, and really building that relationship. And so teachers at the school and parents who subscribe to the philosophy are taking a lot of time to build those um, qualities with their children And then also being able to get to the source of the cause of things instead of responding and, you know, reacting with a punishment or even a consequence that isn't related, children aren't learning from that. And so this technique really embraces mistakes, but learning from those mistakes and having them be different. I used to have kids come into my office all the time and say, I lost my phone. And I'd say, okay, so why'd you lose your phone? What happened? And they're like, I don't remember. I don't remember why I lost my phone. I just know I lost my phone. So to kids, you might as well toss them off a cliff. Their phones are so meaningful to them, but if they don't even remember what caused that they're not learning from their mistake. So positive discipline is really about taking the time to embrace making mistakes, learning, being reflective about them, learning from them and making a plan for next time. And there's a tool that I really love with the families I work with, which is using family meetings to create those experiences of noticing the things that aren't working in our family and trying new things. And of course, and trying something again, there's something called the six levels of moral development that if you look it up, it explains a lot about what is the basis for positive discipline again is like at the top of the pyramid of these six levels is kind of wanting to help kids do the right thing when no one's watching That's what we say at our school, knowing in our heart that it's right. And down on the bottom of the pyramid is like being motivated by being in trouble, being motivated by being rewarded, even being motivated by seeking someone's approval. That may sound like a good thing, but we don't want our children only doing something because we approve of it. We want them to truly believe it's the right thing. And then following the rules sounds like a great thing. And it is, of course, but you want your child or you hope we all as individuals are picking up litter because we care about the planet and not because the police might catch us. So again, that's all about in, in building intrinsic motivation. Yeah, that's great. And a couple of things that made me reflect again on our journey with positive discipline. So we definitely um, started doing the family meetings. I agree that's one of the, the, the best tools. And we followed the guidelines in terms of we created a little agenda that the kids could add to during the week. And I think what was great about that is rather than addressing problems in the moment when everybody's not in the best place to do it, we would just put things on an agenda and then address it calmly at another time. And then we take notes. And when we had come to an agreement of something we wanted to work on, I could then point to that later in the week because I stuck the agreements on the wall. Our house is stuck full of artwork and lists. and It's all there for everyone to see who comes into the house. 
Anyway, so that was just such a helpful tool. And in that we were modeling to the kids about how they had agency and how they were contributing to our family and to the decisions we made. So I found that just an amazing tool. And I really encourage people to give it a go as long as you enter into it, not that feeling of I'm running a meeting, we've got to get this done and write, shut up and listen to what I've got to say, which, you know, we had to fight that a little bit with my husband at times because that was how he wanted the meeting to be run. But a couple of areas that I definitely had more of a struggle with was the trouble. The kids kept saying, I'm going to get into trouble. So once we shifted from saying, no, you're not going to be in trouble, that that, there aren't going to be punishments, there's still consequences, but there aren't going to be punishments. And for so long, they just kept repeating that back to me, but I'm going to be in trouble. And so that was actually quite hard to get them to shift that mindset. We just had to continually demonstrate it and build their trust. And I think that's so important because again, that trust is what our communication is based on. So if they're constantly thinking they're getting into trouble, then they stop communicating with us. But I think on that note too, the other thing was the difference between punishment and consequences. I, for example, remember one time saying to to my daughter, okay, if you don't tidy your room, I was really trying to get her to, to start picking up her room. I was like, if you don't tidy your room, then no art. And she was like, but mom, art helps me with my stress. And then I was like, okay, I've just taken away a tool that helps keep her calm, that will help me in other parts of our life. And her art is not at all related to the mess in her room. So that's when, thank goodness for her speaking up about it, because it made me start to think about, okay, what would be a good consequence? But again, I credit her speaking up to your (laughs) curriculum in the school, giving them the confidence to do that and express their needs very clearly. So yeah, what what are your thoughts on how people can learn the differences between consequences and punishment, and then how you can convince your kids that this new model of positive discipline doesn't mean they're going to be in trouble? First of all, I really want to acknowledge you for taking it on in the way you did. And I saw the progress of your family. So I think that's amazing. Really, it does take a commitment. Like I said, it's a lot easier to use behavior modification, but this is about that long-term thing that we always want our children to have. If they don't have intrinsic motivation, when they get towards high school, they can be over the back fence and doing whatever they want. I think you brought up some really great aspects to positive discipline, and I have to be a little careful when I talk about it because it's a six to 10-week program that I do with parents, so there's a lot to say. But I think you brought up some of the aspects that are really important to remember, too, is the whole idea that our lids are flipped and our prefrontal cortex has has gone offline and our amygdala and lizard brain are in charge when we're upset. And so like you mentioned, the family meeting is a time to address things when we're not triggered, when we can all come together and talk about things calmly, we can try to make it fun so that your, our children don't think it's about being in trouble and say to them, this is about brainstorming and problem solving. And so that's a really important aspect of that and to come together at a completely different time. So yeah, a thing with natural consequences is more not telling your child, not having to remind your child all the time that they need a jacket to go outside and they're going to get cold if they don't. So versus punish be something that's fearful, something that's motivating them by fear and not about what happened. The reason we want to try to give less punishments or even consequences that aren't related is that we want them to learn from what has happened. That is the long-term idea about them building things. And one of the things for me as a parent with families who were learning positive discipline, didn't know about it yet, and kids were still getting in trouble, is they didn't want to tell the truth about what happened. In my relationship with my son, for instance, on his 16th birthday, 
he went ahead and drove and took his friends in his car. And you can't do that in California. Long story short, he came home and told me about it. And we were able to talk about, even though he's a good driver and he stayed on surface streets, that, you know, that would impact our insurance if he, even if someone ran into him, he thought it would only be if he got in an accident and he's a good driver. So we had that conversation. I didn't say the car's gone, but we talked about it. And he said, oh, okay, that makes sense. I won't do it again. You want to have a relationship with your children where they're willing to talk. The other aspect about the family meeting is if we say that here are the rules, we want them to have buy-in. So at school, we would say, what does it take to run a classroom? And kids would raise their hand and say, it takes being quiet and listening respectfully. And it takes doing classroom jobs. And you can do the same thing at home where you help everybody to understand what it takes to run a household. And it's not the parent in a hierarchy saying, this is what's going to happen. It's the kids saying, oh, I get it. These are all the things that happen. This is the part I'm willing to do. And so, like you mentioned, it it is a lot of work, but it also actually creates a lot more relaxation and ease in the family once it starts to flow and you have these tools in place to address things. You're not going at each other when things arise in the moment and having a lot of chaos. And I think that's such a great one. What does it take to run a household? I I remember you guys having those agreements, but I don't think we have actually approached it like that. And I feel like now is the perfect moment because my husband broke his leg rather badly. And there is a lot that he did around the house that helped. And so now the kids are definitely unloading and loading the dishwasher, which they hadn't done before. They definitely had other chores, but they're doing many more chores. I need to get Catherine to break down all the recycle boxes later today, because that was something my husband would normally do. And so again, I think this is a perfect moment. Let's see what it takes to run a household because we've got this gap in our household now that they can be more aware of as, yeah, this is what it takes. It takes all of us to do this. Yeah. And I've actually anchored those meetings with families at times and really had a lot of fun with just let's brainstorm everything it takes from mowing the lawn to feeding the dog, to going to the store, to going to the dry cleaner, to preparing the food, to cleaning it up to, and kids are just like blown away and they get into making this huge list. And then they look at it and you have a conversation. Is this something that mom and dad should be doing everything? And then they have fun choosing my family. We negotiated. I don't love to empty the dishwasher. My sons, I'll do the dishwasher. And to me, that's so huge that I don't have to empty the dishwasher. So it's a negotiation and it's a buy-in and it's a recognition that we're all part of the family. Positive discipline is creating community and a sense of belonging. And it makes you feel a part of when you're contributing. Yeah. And I see that. I definitely see that the, the kids love to be needed in that way. And again, we do spend a lot of time saying thank you for doing that. Yes, it's something we expect them to do, but we still recognize and acknowledge them when they do it and say how much it does help us. But actually creating that list makes me think about this other book that I've read, which is called Fair Play by Eve Rodsky. And it has a set of cards that come with it, which is basically all the household tasks in a card set and you can just um, print them off from the internet. And her book is really about fair play between the husband and wife. But my goodness, I can use those cards because I've actually printed them off because <laughs> we printed them off and you're supposed to like share them between your husband and yourself. And it, it didn't work perfectly with between my husband and I because I held so many of the cards and I held so many of the parenting cards and we struggled to work out how he could take more of the, the parenting cards. But actually it's just this perfect set of cards that we can 
play with the kids and say, okay, let's look at all these things. Which ones would you guys like to take on? And I think the fact that they also show the parenting tasks in there helps them see, oh, mom, you don't need to do that for me anymore. Because I know that the first process is you throw out any cards that you no longer need. And we're like, no more diapers. Yay. (laughs) So that's great. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about the the issues that families you work with are facing and what are you seeing there? You mentioned about the anxiety that kids are experiencing, anxiety and depression in schools, but say a little bit more again, because you've been in this area for a long time too. So you, you must be also seeing potentially changes. Tell me what is from your perspective, like the state of families' emotional health at the moment? Let's start there and then I'll ask you about how you then help them. Yeah, anxiety is probably the thing I see the most as we all have anxiety on some level um, and we need some anxiety on some level, but it, you know, can become detrimental. So anxiety, and I love working with anxiety, OCD, people becoming very obsessive and compulsive about things, certainly depression, ADHD is extremely prevalent. When you talk about things that have changed a little, it has become more and more prevalent. Our school had, you know, somewhat of a larger population that experienced that. Behavior issues, again, is something when we talk about positive discipline that really impacts the family. And so helping parents to understand how to respond to behavior issues is a very huge thing that happened over my years, which goes into all the issues of family communication, our own personal dysregulation. So needing to regulate ourselves marital issues in your area, (laughs) obviously the whole overwhelm, exhaustion, hopelessness. There's no manual that comes with our children, parents having their own triggers from the past that come up when we have children and people just not having enough time, not having time to be mindful, to exercise, eat healthy. And some of those things that we can talk about that are helpful, but yeah, part of the great opportunity for me about working with all these hundreds of families over 10 years at a school was that I got to see the things that came up over and over. And I tried to design a lot of programs that kind of responded to all those things, both in the building blocks and then working individually with children. So what are some of the things that maybe you developed for specific problems that you can describe? Yeah. So I mentioned anxiety is one of the things that affects a lot of people. And One of the things, again, that I appreciated about our school and I train work with families privately is doing things to help with anxiety proactively. Mindfulness was a part of our program. Mindfulness is something that is becoming very prevalent with everybody from sports, you know, people in sports to politicians, business people, because they, there is so much scientific data that supports the fact that it actually changes your brain. And so if you can help families to learn about mindfulness, um, and practice it, it can do so much to help you regulate differently and help you be able to respond instead of react to things. So the power of co-regulation, the thing about being a parent is if we can help ourselves, uh, then we can help our kids by co-regulating. And this can even be true in married couples. If you respond differently when your spouse gets upset with you, if you engage, it's going to escalate. But if you can diffuse it and stay regulated yourself, there's so much power in that. Um, And again, mindfulness can really help us with that. SPACE is a program that I started doing at the school last year that was developed by 
Yale, which is actually a program that they have determined that, that you can work with parents, just parents, to overcome anxiety and OCD in children. It's been empirically tested in like a time period of 10 sessions because we can start to understand the ways that we're accommodating our children and increase our support of them and decrease accommodations. And it has been very effective in shifting childhood anxiety. So that's pretty exciting. I've done exposure therapy with kids, both when kids have OCD, but also just with anxiety. One of the biggest things that I tried to help kids with at school, you might remember the poster that I had up in my office that was about building distress tolerances as just getting comfortable with discomfort. One of the things you hear people commenting all the time about how kids don't want to do anything that's hard for them anymore and doing video games all the time is... And some of that might be true, certainly teaching our kids that it's okay to be uncomfortable. And an important piece of that is to give them empathy. I know this is really hard and I know that you can handle it because being uncomfortable is part of life. So the more that we can respond in a calm way to just helping our kids know that being uncomfortable is going to be part of life. And then, as I mentioned, ADHD was a big, big thing at the school. And we had a program there that I grabbed from a great book called Hunter and His Amazing Remote Control, but I added a lot to it just again, from some of the things that I'd experienced through kids at school, putting in using all these buttons on this remote control to be able to pause and be able to rewind and be reflective, fast forward and think through how you would do things next time. So that's a great curriculum that kind of helps with ADHD, which again, is very common these days. And the remote control was definitely something that we had printed at home and that the kids could really understand and relate to and and use when they needed it. So that definitely was a great tool for them. Over the years, as all the kids had started to learn it, that even though we taught it from K to five, the middle schools all knew it. Most of them knew it from being in K to five. And so then they would start to teach their peers about it in middle school. I think the kids really felt like that was a good tool for them. And just in terms of mindfulness, that's something that I I have um, definitely tried. So I I do some work for the scientific director of Calm. And so she gifted me the Calm app for Christmas last year. So I did go through the 30-day Calm program. And now I definitely use their sleep stories for both myself and for the kids, actually. Both kids have benefited when they couldn't sleep listening to the sleep stories. But tell me a little bit about your mindfulness practice, how you get kids to do it, because I definitely have found it challenging to have a mindfulness habit. Yeah, thanks for asking. And at school we were lucky enough to be able to put it in the curriculum and explain to the kids why we put it in the curriculum, because we don't want to ask kids to do something that we didn't explain and have them understand the reasons for it. And I was very open with kids about letting them say, I hate it, but I understand it because it is very difficult to get families, even adults to practice it regularly. People do it and then say, that doesn't feel very good. I don't really like it. And I certainly many years ago when started practicing, I was one that, you know, was peeking at the clock with one eye. (laughs) Have I done my time yet? And now I just love it. Like I just love it. And I, my husband and I both practice and we can tell if we get off track on it. So the thing about mindfulness is it It has been scientifically proven to change your brain, shrinks the size of your amygdala, your alarm system, helping it to be able to respond better. So if you are able to do those things proactively, it starts to calm your brain down in general. And then in the moment, you can respond 
by using mindfulness as well, taking some deep breaths and trying to just be present in your body instead of reacting to things. So those are the two ways to do it. There's lots of different ways when you talk about kids. There's tons of apps. You mentioned the Calm app. I have a page of probably 20 of them that I share with parents. There's Zen Den Go Noodle ones for little kids where they're like, pretending they're an ice cube and pretending they're melting, things that are going to help you get in your body, be present in your body. Body scans can be really helpful. I have kids go out for mindful walks. So let's stop this hike. And for five minutes, we're just going to be completely quiet and we're going to listen. We're going to use our five senses. And then you stop them after five minutes and say, okay, now what did you hear, smell, feel all of that? And they're like, oh, wow, I heard the birds chirping. I didn't notice that before. I smelled the leaves. I felt the breeze because then they were just in their minds thinking or talking or they weren't really present in the moment. Or you can take your kids for a color walk and say, let's look for red, let's look for blue. And those are things that just help us get grounded and present in the moment. So those things can also help change our brain. Yeah, those are great examples for the kids too. And it reminded me, actually, we used to start our family meetings with a single chocolate drop that we had to put on our lip and hold it there for as long as possible but then you'd get it in your mouth and we'd just be as slow as possible to just have this one chocolate drop and see how it tasted and it did help get us all into this zone of paying attention and um, thinking about it so that was actually a fun one that worked for us. So I'm um, thinking now a little bit that you're transferred back out of the school and into um, practice who would you recommend your services for and, and how can parents really recognize when they might need help from a marriage and family therapist? Basically, I think all parents. <laughs> yes, you're right. You're right. It's not such a big thing, is it? If we didn't see it as this big, awful thing, right? It would just be, this is one of our tools. Parents have a lot of struggles. It's difficult. It doesn't matter if you have one kid or five kids, 10 kids. It's difficult. It's isolating. If you're working, trying to balance things, that can be more difficult. So when parents start to struggle with children's behaviors or mental health issues, it's definitely key time to get help. And like some of the tools we already talked about can be really helpful with parents with changing behaviors at home. Parents often want to hand a therapist their child and say to fix them, but what I feel like it's incredibly empowering for the parents to know that they have so much that they can do, not in a negative, shameful, blaming way, but just there's so much you can do as a parent that can change. And even in any relationship, even in our marriages, it's like a dance. And if one person changes the dance, the other person has to change their steps. So I really think a lot of parents, if they can you know, afford to have a therapist that works with them and the whole family experience is very helpful. Definitely, if you have a child who's struggling with any sort of health issues, anxiety, OCD, depression, ADHD, suicidal ideation, unfortunately, had a very common, lots of kids experience suicidal thoughts, um, thinking about them, it can be very scary for a child. Oftentimes, that's combined with behaviors. And it can feel very scary for parents to want to help their child feel uncomfortable when they're worried that their child might take their life. So that is definitely a time to get help from a therapist. And just noticing if your child's actions are impairing their life functioning. It can be a child who can't pull themselves away from the video game to come to the table for dinner. You're going to want to have some strategies that are going to help your family come together with better communication. Just families learning how to communicate and problem solve. Like we mentioned, buy-in, making agreements. You mentioned putting up your family agreements, making agreements just like we did at school and having regular family meetings. So all those reasons are great reasons to seek somebody out. 
to get help. But I would say I love working with children, but in the moment, I'm pretty excited about helping parents. I feel like parents can be extremely impactful in the whole family's experience. And I mentioned briefly, but some of the new programs I'm really excited about being in the midst of creating and delivering are the space program that I talked about. The thing about some people's views of therapy is they think they're going to get into therapy and they're going to be paying for it and going to therapy forever. But some of these programs have a very distinct starting and ending time, like spaces eight to 10 weeks and designed to be able to overcome anxiety, which is pretty powerful. And this has empirical evidence from Yale, and it really uh, supports a lot of things that I knew to be true. Having a distinct timeline like that can be really emotionally satisfying for parents. And I would say at the end of parents going through it, they're saying they're really understanding how to increase support for their children and recognizing also that as much as we want children to be happy that it's also important to allow them to be uncomfortable. Um, That's been one of the biggest takeaways that I've heard from parents. And the whole idea of eight to 10 weeks is something that I've always known in brain science. It takes about eight weeks to form a habit. So doing something for that long can be really great. I also am designing some very specific positive discipline trainings again, that are going to have kind of a distinct starting and ending so that parents can really feel like they're learning all those systems and getting a lot out of it. Great. I I, I so appreciate that because I think you're right. Um, People do sometimes feel like therapy might never end. And so having these programs is so important, but I also do think it really reflects the expertise that you have developed over the years, because to me, being able to facilitate programs, run programs, teach people skills, it is not easy. I'm a behavior change scientist. And that's really what we try to do is teach people new habits and new skills. And it takes a lot to do that. So I really appreciate that those are the things you're you're doing because I think sometimes people feel with therapy that a lot of issues get raised but maybe they don't go away knowing how to solve them and that's why I loved coaching as well because I think you have that background too of the coaching and that's why I found coaching was often very good at helping me then develop the skills to solve some of the problems so I think it's great that you're just bringing all this experience to these really important issues. It's not just about learning. It's just not about awareness. It is about developing skills. So I very much appreciate that you're doing that. Thank you. A lot of it came, like I said, from my own struggles and I'm human and flawed and um, I have a lot of compassion and empathy for people I work with because I've gone through the same things. I'm not any better. I still struggle with things and I'm still learning and growing. So with neuroplasticity, that's good for all our brains to continue to do that. Exactly at any age. So just shifting a little bit to the topic of all of this is relevant to this podcast, but the particular focus on on burnout, how often are you seeing parents who are burned out, either burned out as parents or burned out from their work, and then their work is affecting their parenting and the family as a whole? So how, how often do you see that? And how do you help people with that? Yeah, your podcast is very relevant because I would say most parents are burned out for one reason or another. You may remember at the beginning of the year when we were going through the pandemic, I had the great opportunity to meet with every single of the 425 parents at our school online. 
And I did these little quizzes for them where they were live interacting and, you know, they were all, they were all like burnt out and you can be burned out for different things. I was lucky enough to get to stay home with my only child, but it was overwhelming to me to be home with my only child. You're not having that kind of social interaction. So that can burn us out mentally. Parents to work, our culture, and like we were talking a little bit before the podcast, the expectations of moms, they put on themselves to do it all. Dads are certainly doing a lot more than they used to way back in the day when I was growing up, but there's still some things that kind of fall into those stereotypical ways that people think about families being run. Like you were saying, you had more of the parent cards on your side. And then just our whole society, it's designed over the industrial era in terms of how much we work, how much our kids are at school. There's really no time for self-care. But yeah, I think a lot of parents are struggling. I think it's just difficult to raise children and being bringing in income. And there's a lot of stressors that are going on in the world as a whole right now that are making people recognize that they need support. And one of the things that I know we talked about early on in our um, relationship and in relationship to my kids was you asked about whether my husband and I were high achieving. And I remember it sort of struck me as strange because I didn't think anything about it in terms of how it could be affecting my kids. But as I came to understand my own issues with perfectionism and realizing that my kids were struggling with it too and learning how this is also can lead to burnout because it does lead to burnout in both work and home if you have that sort of trait it affects many areas of your life so what do you see in that sort of situation with kids and parents struggling with perfectionism and achievement orientation which again positive disciplines trying to get you away from that but many of us have been trained to go towards it so what do you recommend for that sort of scenario for one thing when you talk about working families there's a lot of layers to it because some families have to work or to support a lifestyle and that can be difficult just because some of them may, may or may not really enjoy work and then there's families who are both working because they're very highly accomplished and achieving parents and so the thing is like, that's a good trait, right? Even being a perfectionist or doing things well is a great trait. And we want to model for our kids that we work hard. However, kids can be watching that and thinking they need to be perfect. And sometimes as adults, we're very self-critical of our own mistake and they're living with a lot of anxiety that can make it hard for their children to embrace mistakes. The thing that's funny to me is, and, and this may have been how our conversation came about, is I talked to parents and asked them how they handle it when their kids make mistakes. And they'll always say, oh, we're totally fine with our kids making mistakes. We embrace them. We tell them it's okay. And then I'll say, okay, how are you when you make mistakes? And then they'll often grimace and say, oops, I'm really hard on myself. I'm a perfectionist. It's hard for me to make mistakes. And so that is where they recognize that our modeling is very important to parents. And again, it's just one of these things we want to be aware of. We don't want to be hard on ourselves about it because it's a great quality but we want to notice that. And then once we see that we're doing that, we can have some fun with embracing mistake making and saying, oops, I blew it. That's okay. To really let kids know that even for us, it's okay. So I would say for parents that find themselves really struggling with feeling anxious over not doing everything perfectly is to try to embrace that mistakes are what help us learn. Growth mindset is something that we teach to children at the school, which is about having a flexible mindset and the concept that failure is really where the learning takes place. Um, 
and helps our minds to stay flexible and self-acceptance, self-love, self-acceptance of all of our imperfections and flaws is something that we want to do for ourselves and our children. And if just recognizing too, if we're a perfectionist and feeling a lot of anxiety, if we're not doing things well, that's carrying an energy that can be difficult for us. And it's not going to help us be able to respond with feeling more calm when things don't go well. But again, not to be critical because it's a great quality. We just want to pay attention to it and be mindful. I was very grateful for you for pointing it out. And you, of course, did it in in the perfect way in the scenario. But nonetheless, it struck me because I hadn't been thinking about it. It was something I was not aware of in myself, but yet must have been something that really resonated with me as as being a potential issue. I think you had been chatting to my son and he had been saying, I don't want to get into trouble. I'm not allowed to make mistakes and things. So you were following up in that kind of conversation with him to check in, okay, how do you guys do things at home? We've always really tried to have family meals together. So as part of our family meal ritual for a while, we had a mistake jar where we put money in the jar where we made mistakes and we talked about what they were and what we'd learned from them. So I think that really helped us move along to feeling comfortable with mistakes and even, you know, kind of explaining about how making mistakes is human. So my daughter always says now, oh, I made a mistake. That's because I'm not a robot. And she's really proud of this (laughs) existence she has that isn't a robot. And yeah, it has been helpful, but I can still even in my head see this one time when I came back from the store. And I'd left the milk at the store. I had done the self-checkout and I left the milk on the side. And I was so angry with myself. And I was just like beating myself up and calling myself stupid. And I was like, oh my goodness, here I am doing it. So again, that self-awareness is the first step. And you don't often get to that self-awareness without somebody else pointing it out to you. So I was very grateful for that. Again, I acknowledge you for all the great, things you took on the oops jar is another part of positive discipline the kids actually put in roll up and put in their mistakes and then you have a party and you open them up and you talk about what you learned from them and again just creating that whole environment that it's okay to make mistakes and we learn from them I love it so just wrapping up Jennifer thank you so much for your time is there one behavior change that you would recommend for families to start today because we've talked about a lot of things and obviously what we've talked about requires a lot of support. As you mentioned, these are our long-term behavior change efforts that come with curricula that last several weeks. I got a lot from the book, but obviously I did have your support because the kids were being trained at school while I was also learning at home. But if there's one behavior you could recommend for families to start today, I'd love to leave with something that they can action. I definitely think what we talked about in terms of proactively calming down your nervous system for people who want to look into understand a little bit more about mindfulness. It can look like yoga, but doing things that help your nervous system calm down proactively, yoga, exercise, eating, or something else is going to, again, give you that empowerment to be able to respond instead of react. If you can create a pause when you get triggered and we all get triggered and be able to just breathe, count to 10, use self-talk with yourself, so that your situation isn't overtaking your sensible brain as a first step, that's just going to make you feel like you have so much more control of your environment and make you feel so much more empowered. And how do you notice a a trigger? That has a lot to do with a lot of things I teach as a therapist. For instance, if I 
go to the sink and my husband has left dishes in the sink and I make it mean something like, oh, he doesn't care about me. (laughs) Then that's like making it mean something and triggering me into getting upset versus being able to tell myself he probably just didn't have time this morning. People do it all the time where they make assumptions about people, but really those are reacting to an old wound or something that is a trigger for us. And I don't know if you remember, but the kids learned about them in terms of storm starters. Like what are things that start your storm? And if you look at those storm starters, because for some people, it might be someone leaving you out or it might be not doing well in school. And we all have different things that really trigger us. And they're usually about something that happened, which as a therapist, you get to go back and look at and recognize what the true source is because we carry those things forward. If our parent left us when we were young, we might have abandonment issues. And then whenever somebody doesn't return a phone call, that abandonment issues come up. So storm starters is a fun way for families to talk about it all together, of just sharing the things that really make our brain feel upset, make our emotions feel upset, trigger us. Great. That's really helpful to have that explanation a little more because I'm conscious of that. So many of the terms that we get familiar with once we started getting into this and working on it, but that we forget what it was like to be at the beginning and and be going, how do I even know I've been triggered? I I lacked so much self-awareness, to be honest, even awareness of my emotions because I was suppressing them. So that took a while for me to even go through those steps of recognizing, oh, I am upset. I am feeling something not the dishes for me, but something else, say, and then starting to recognize the pattern in in being upset to then actually be able to say, okay, here's my trigger. So it's a lot of work, but it's worth it. Exactly. And I think one of the most important things for people to, you know, get help, I think we touched on this, is just for people to understand that it's normal and empowering to get help. There's nothing wrong. We're all human. We're all flawed. And so working with someone, I think, on anything that you're struggling with individually or as a family can only benefit everybody. Thanks so much for listening. You can find additional resources on my website, drjacquelinecurr.com. Please send me feedback and your ideas for episodes or guests and subscribe or follow wherever you listen. And please remember, burnout can be related to serious health problems. If you're experiencing physical or mental health symptoms, please contact a health provider or call the appropriate helpline. This podcast does not replace medical advice. Take care. Take control, you're a fighter. Push the limits and see it, you're already there. Told you we going higher. Ain't no stopping us, we're going.
your eyes feel the power. 